This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. As many students in the Northern Hemisphere begin summer break, I thought it would be a good time to reflect on and reimagine universities. Ian Cook and Prem Kumar Rajaram join me today to talk about their new open access co-edited volume entitled Opening Up the University, Teaching and Learning with Refugees, which was put together with Celine Cantat. It's good to think about different types of borders that people are displaced from. There are cultural borders, economic borders, where you know students come from historically marginalized groups within a nation, they're displaced from them. So like, so one hand is a challenge for the teacher and the learner and for everybody. It's about recognizing different forms of knowledge that may have been learned in very different systems uh, and both inside and outside the university and whether or not that is valued in the classroom and valued as part of learning. Ian Cook is Director of Studies at the Open Learning Initiative in Budapest, located at the Central European University, where Prem Kumar Rajaram is Professor at the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology and Head of the Open Learning Initiative. Ian Cook and Prem Kumar Rajaram, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hello, thank you. So congratulations on your new co-edited collection. It is big and insightful and has so many different resources, and I'm sure we won't be able to touch on all of it today. But to sort of kick it off, I guess the way I would start the conversation is about trying to think through what a displaced student is. So how would you begin to think through what a displaced student is? Well, a displaced, I think it's important first to start with the idea that there's many forms of displacement. And it's also interesting to think about the fact that there are displaced students um, existing invisibly in the university. In many ways, uh, students who have experienced homelessness are displaced. It's not just the political displacement of people like refugees, but there are groups of people who are displaced from nation states, from the way in which we typically arrange our political, economic, and cultural systems. So I think when we think about displacement, it's good to think about different types of borders uh, that people are displaced from. There are cultural borders, there are economic borders, where you know students come from historically marginalized groups within a nation, they're displaced from them. Attention is paid, and we pay attention in this book to people who are displaced from their home countries, spatially displaced, and then they encounter another form of displacement when they enter into a host country because they are politically displaced, they're often culturally displaced. But I think we also make the point that, you know, uh, we can't do everything in the book, and there are differences between, you know, people from a marginalized community within a particular country and a refugee or an asylum seeker. Uh, but there also are connections. And we've chosen to focus on people who are called refugees. Uh, but we also understand that experience of displacement is common to many groups uh, and it's multiply located. We think about it in terms of displacement from political borders, economic systems, uh, cultural borders. And this displacement would be, it, it's both sort of a choice, but also something that's put onto certain individuals without their choice. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting. I mean, the question of choice, it's also important to problematize that a little bit because a lot of people are forcibly displaced, you know, that's the term. But there is an element of choice and agency there, which is important to emphasize. And when someone leaves a country to go somewhere else, they're not just, you know, victims of broader forces. There is an element of autonomous choice, I think, we think. But it is important also to note that they are fleeing conditions of economic, political insecurity. Um, and then they experience another form of displacement, we think, when they enter into host countries uh, because they are displaced from 
economic systems, cultural systems, and across multiple institutions, whether it's the large state institutions or the other institutions like the university. It doesn't have to be that way, but it can be that way. Yeah, maybe if I just follow up on that, I mean, some of them, the things that we know from working with students who've experienced displacement is that even though there's not, even though you can't say, okay, here's a long list of, of things that, that mark these students out, there are often recurring things that we notice from, from the work that we do working in programs that try to open up the university and also from the book as well is that, you know, sometimes it's, it's things like missing documents right? That universities are not very good traditionally at accepting. It's like, well, do you have a degree? Prove it. Where's your piece of paper? And if, if somebody didn't bring that piece of paper with them when they had to leave in a hurry or they lost it along the way, then they face big barriers. Sometimes it's about not recognizing, even if they have a piece of paper, about not recognizing different educational systems when they arrive in a host country and how this is translated or not. I mean, we know people who've had to go back to school, you know, before they can get into university. So you're saying that, so on the one hand, there's a, an element of bureaucracy bureaucracy and the paperwork. And if you don't have the right paperwork or you left the paperwork or the paperwork got lost or damaged, it's hard to prove in a bureaucratic way that you've obtained some qualification or, or degree. But then you're also saying, Ian, something about just differences in education systems and that being a sort of challenge for the learner or like what's the challenge when it comes to differences in education systems? Big, like both. So like, so one hand is a challenge for the teacher and the learner and for everybody. It's about recognizing different forms of knowledge that may have been learned in very different systems uh, and both inside and outside the university and whether or not that is valued in the classroom and valued as part of learning because if you think about it um First of all, if you arrive to Europe, which is the, the book is mostly about Europe, then we've, of course, we've all gone through a very particular form of education. Like, I mean, in the social sciences and humanities, but also, also in the natural sciences, certain way to think about certain things, certain forms of epistemologies that we don't even question on a day-to-day -day basis inside the university. But then sometimes you have people who've, who've come in a very different tradition or who've experienced that tradition mediated by colonial or post-colonial um, structures as well. And then they're in the classroom and there's certain, you know, often, unfortunately, I guess their learning is, is viewed through the prism of lack. You know, this is what they're lacking. They're lacking, you know, the, the same things that the European student has got. And how do we then, you know, integrate those students into educational structures by overcoming that lack? And that's a big problem, uh, we think, in the book and the different chapters in the book show that because that basically means that the student can never really be fully valued as a student who brings with them, you know, the sort of the learning that they've done in very different contexts and learnings that they've done outside of universities in a meaningful way and when they're seen as a, an individual human who is able to learn and grow. Instead, they're seen as someone who needs to be, you know, pulled up to speed to fit in with the rest of the existing educational structures. That's quite fascinating. So it sounds like the discourse around it is that the student needs to change, not the university or the program and the courses that are being offered need to change. The student needs to learn how to sort of get into line with what we offer. Uh, yes. And yet again, you know, I think in most universities, there's a certain idea of the student. Sometimes it's cast as the ideal student, sometimes it's just cast as the normal student, you know, a certain student who's gone through a certain linear trajectory of education all the way from kindergarten through finishing high school with supportive, uh, you know, there's assumptions there of support of a nuclear family, of 
sometimes financial resources, etc., etc., etc. And this idea of an ideal student is something which you know some students uh, can measure up to. Sometimes it's because they have certain types of resources, sometimes because they're recognizably part of the middle class, and then there are other students who come from different backgrounds, etc. And I think when you look at the margins, the people who are really at the margins, for example, students who have experienced a type of displacement we're talking about, you really understand something about the system. It's uh, occlusions as well as exclusions and the things that they fail to see. It's not even the case that they, I mean, it is the case that they fail to value it, but more fundamentally, they fail to see, they fail to recognize different types of learning, different types of educational trajectories, which become almost imperceptible. Um, And of course, there are moves in various universities to address this, but there are you know, there's many studies, many reports, many accounts, many testimonies of students from the non-ideal background feeling marginalized, out of place in the university. So before we sort of turn to trying to reimagine higher education from the sort of vantage point of displaced students, so to speak, as you have been mentioning, that the university's displacement sort of sits within a wider context. How would you describe that context and what parts of this context matter to the conversation around universities today? I think I'll start and then let Prem join in. I think the wider context is a big question, which I think we ask ourselves and I think everyone who works or studies in higher education should ask, like, what's the point of a university? Like, really, what's the point of a university? Why have we set up these systems? Where did they come from? And part of this is historical. Uh, and then part of it is is also trying to understand these very sort of local national context, but also the pan-European or global context as well. So historically, to give like a very sort of, you know, short version, universities were places of, yeah, and so I realize I'm talking to an expert here. Well, there were places of, of elite learning for small groups of men right? This is what they were. And then slowly different groups were allowed in, you know, women were allowed in at some point. And then across many parts of Europe and the world, there was a massification of higher education in the 20th century. Lots more people started to go. Uh, in the UK, where your base will, you know, like Tony Blair had this, you know, thing, we're going to have 50% of people in university. And that became like a mantra. I think globally now, like there's about 35, 36% of people, you know, get to go to university. Whereas amongst refugee populations, it's about 5%. Although the UNHCR has a aim now, they want to get 15% by 2030. That's like a 15 by 30 is their sort of goal. But we can critique numbers. I listened to one of your podcasts a while back, maybe 2020, all about numbers, where you're saying don't get beholden by numbers. But the point there is then suddenly it got very big. And then also then, you know, then we had the whole sort of neoliberal turn of universities where it's like, okay, now everyone's in university. We need to get people paying for university. Fees started to get introduced. I know in American context, fees have always been there. So more and more people are now expected to pay to university. And that means there's a certain instrumentalization of higher education. I go to university to get myself a piece of paper that's going to help me get to a certain place and put people on certain life trajectories, right? And when you have this sort of, you know, historical trend that we've reached the current point of now, plus we have this question where I think a lot of us feel that higher education is in a little bit of a crisis, should we say right now, where it's like, you know, like everyone seems to be under attack in different ways, you know, like there's too many people with PhDs trying to get jobs. There's uh, lots of 
you know, university departments or universities themselves that are under threat because of funding. There's also lots of universities like the university where we both work, the Central European University, but other universities as well that are under threat from authoritarian regimes because they're trying to shut down certain notions of academic freedom. Then there's also the freedom from the market, which is needed as well. And so this is sort of like the big context within which then suddenly we're saying, okay, we think that universities should be opened up for people who are displaced. And this makes it very difficult because everyone seems to be in a moment of, ah, like total crisis. You want to make it even more complicated? Uh, but we don't, think that's a, we don't think that's necessarily a complication. We think it's probably uh, an opportunity. It's an opportunity for reimagining what the university is and could be. Do we want universities to be a an assembly line for the market, right? Do we want the universities to go back to being places of elite knowledge production? Do we want all of us who work in universities to all lose our jobs uh, when we all move online and, you know, a few superstar academics, you know, teach their online courses and then PhD students sit around and help undergraduates understand? All these questions are there. Or can universities have a social mission? You know, can universities have, you know, the third mission of a university beyond teaching and research to be active players to make the world a better place because we believe that you know education can be a really important thing to make the world a better place not only in individuals lives but in society for society you know people who have critical thinking skills the sort of stuff that you learn when you get to university can affect change in society for better it's good for democracy you know it's good for just everyday life if we if if we if we do this so i think like in a sense that's how i see it as an opportunity like what are universities going to do like everyone says now like not everybody there's a lot of talk around now you know like sort of the, the age of migration or or of like big big flows of refugees and we problematize that language where it's like dehumanizing language but there are a lot of people who are displaced in the world right now what are we those of us who work in universities going to do <laughs> like, like when you know and i think that's that's a mission that's something there that we can actually think about, you know, on an everyday basis and also reimagining what universities are going to be into the future. It's quite interesting to think, you know, historically there, how dynamic the university has been and it changes over time. It's not static or constant. And so in a way that is hopeful. So despite the crisis we might be in and all the different sort of angles that you've outlined, there is this potential and this possibility to see and imagine and reimagine a university in a new way. And so that is quite hopeful, despite the sort of dire circumstances that exist. But Prem, I want to bring you in because I, you know, another issue that seems to be at play here is something around the nation state, because universities seem to historically been designed, you know, on a nation state basis, but yet we, you know, people are moving, there's the internationalization of higher education and people moving around the world to pay fees and get degrees and pieces of paper from all over the world, but also this issue of sort of displaced people who have been moving across borders willingly or not, and then trying to enter universities. It seems as if the nation state also is a constraint here in some ways. Um, I think it can be a constraint, but you can also flip it the other way and see how the university is actually can be at the vanguard of really creating a more an opportunity for a more global form of community, a more global form of, of learning community. Um, but I think that the issue comes more rather picking up what Ian is saying is that the university becomes um, 
increasingly cloistered. It becomes this, this space where it is a part of the nation state, but it is fragmented and disconnected from certain other parts of the nation state. So, you know, I think that the nation state works well when it's in a hegemony by um, creating connections between certain institutions and pretending, imagining, cultivating disconnections with other institutions. So I think we say this somewhere in the book, but opening up the university shouldn't come only from within the university. When we talk about opening up the university, we mean opening up a space of learning, a space of knowledge. This involves working with people, with groups, uh, with organizations outside of the university, whether these are informal education organizations or whether they are migrant rights groups or whether they are trade unions. So I think it's important to, as we talk about opening up universities, as Ian says, we're opening up education, opening up learning, questioning the restrictive purposes of learning so that people either become, you know, civil servants or they're prepared for market jobs, but rather re-articulate this project of learning with, with a wider framing of society and this can be you know all sorts of things from large from global organizations or globally minded organizations to very local neighborhood organizations and, and universities increasingly i think have become cloistered where there are connections their connections to the market their connection to certain state institutions and it creates this commonsensical view of a network of learning and employment that connects universities to big businesses or to the state to provide civil servants. And knowledge isn't refreshed. Knowledge isn't renewed because it's not connecting in the same way or in different ways to different types of groups. Groups outside of university have to represent uh, marginalized groups who, who have something to say about what constitutes knowledge and learning, but this something is is not, um, you know, it's not perceptible, it's not resonant in society. Is this what you would call disruptive education? I mean, in the book, that's sort of one of the points that you you emphasize. We need to move towards this notion of disruptive education. I think so. I mean, Ian will also, I'm sure, have lots to add to this point. But but I think that whole idea of disruptive education is to, first of all, have some sort of a sense of what it is that we are trying to disrupt. And for me, at least, that the basic thing, what we're trying to disrupt is, is a stasis, is a cloistered way of uh, producing and reproducing knowledge. Knowledge that leads to, as Ian wrote in his chapter, leads to, you know, um, academics being involved in academia and for prestige, you know, the publications in terms of journals, etc., etc. And how do we disrupt that? How do we break out of this cycle of producing a certain form of knowledge, of creating certain types of academic professionals who do a certain type of thing over and over again? And to disrupt that, partly, is to open up the university towards different groups of people, open up the university towards different types of organizations, different ways of thinking and seeing. And then maybe it goes down into the classroom as well, right? So like disruptive education in the classroom. That means thinking about the syllabi that we produce so that they're not just, you know, going recycling themselves through the canon again and again and again, but recognizing that, okay, if we're going to have more diverse classrooms, we need more diverse readings or educational stimuli, and we need to allow classrooms to be places where disruptive knowledge circulates and where we can think 
together with students, not as not in a hierarchical way. Of course, there are always hierarchies there within a classroom, but not always in a way of like, you know, me, the professor with all this knowledge puts it now into the student head, but rather thinking about in a much more radically co-learning type of sense, you know, and that's disruptive for us as teachers, right? Like uh, when you enter a classroom, sometimes it can be a bit scary if you don't know where your class is going to go when you start. And so in a sense, to go back to that initial example that you gave around a displaced student who might be seen as lacking, but actually is has all of these amazing sort of epistemologies and insight and knowledge. And so a disruptive education in the classroom might be embracing what that student has to offer without exactly knowing what that information is or that knowledge or epistemology and so that the teacher ends up learning in the process but the student isn't seen as as in deficit let's say but it, and, and to add to that you know and i think it's really important to acknowledge this this project of opening up the university to opening up to different ways of seeing and knowing the world is and or can be uh, a discomforting experience it's not all about you know light and happiness it's about thinking about and responding to ways of seeing and knowing the world which can be discomforting and how do you sit with something that's discomforting something that can often break or question our worldviews or ways of seeing things and so on and our interests it's like giving up control as well so you know we have to be okay not being in control and that i think probably is quite hard for teachers and professors you can't prepare for it my experience is you can't we, we can talk about it we can imagine we can do what it actually happened is like i won't swear on your podcast but you know it is <laughs> but but i would just say that at the same time it's just so that we don't sound naive which i don't think neither of us are and i think all the the different chapters in the book point out the difficulties that are faced sometimes that means thinking about what university programs can do to make sure that students who are displaced who come into the university so that they can flourish so they can do really well there and so for a lot of students it does mean things like language training or digital skills training and it's always this balance between do we want to be involved in sort of a mainstreaming process or do we want to you know accept the radical difference that comes into the university and uh, what does the student want within that because of course you know we can talk like as Prem said yeah, it's easy to talk about but when you actually sit down and speak with students who are from many different parts of the world find themselves in different new countries trying to remake their life as best as possible sometimes they really do want to use a degree in a very instrumental way and that's totally fine you know, that's totally like, I took, it's like, we're totally, of course, you need to get that piece of paper so that you can go, you know, get on with your life and do these things. And that's also really important as well. So it's like, it's recognizing this balance and working through and saying, okay, you know, we respect what people are bringing and work with and through that. But at the same time, make sure that, that the students who are coming from different parts of the world, forcibly displaced, end up and end up in a university. They can really make the most of that opportunity to do as much as they can with their life afterwards. Or what could change at the sort of institutional level? to allow for universities to open up? On an institutional level, maybe we can make a list. One is an obvious one is, is cost of education, I think. Certain countries recognize that people who are displaced don't have access to resources that, uh, that you know, local students might, but even then local students might not. Some um, countries, like the one we're living in, uh, Hungary, they just treat students who are 
officially refugees as if they were, you know, a Hungarian student in the sense that they're, you know, they have to either go into a Hungarian language program, which Hungarian is a very difficult language to learn to study, or they just, you know, they go to an English language program, which is very expensive, you know, and they're actually barred from applying for grants that international students would be allowed to apply for because they say, oh, you're a refugee. That means you should be counted as a Hungarian. So it's recognizing the particular things. It's also thinking about, and I think this is actually good for the, for the whole of the university, recognizing that people often come to universities with very complex lives and how this can be accommodated for institutionally. This may be like, you know, a lot of students come with trauma. Trauma shows itself in very strange ways, sometimes as teachers and also as like, you know, as people who organize programs, it's difficult to deal with because, you know, trauma can be like just a student standing up and walking out of a class five times during a class, you know? Trauma can be the home country where the student comes from is going through a very difficult time. Like I noticed I was talking to a student originally from Syria who was saying, yeah, he remembers during his time when he did a master's, you know, just like his hometown then was on the front line of the war. And he just couldn't concentrate, couldn't read. But what do you do when you have a program which is designed to be over very fast? You know, because this is higher education now. Like, let's get let's get people in in September, out in summer for a master's or in three years or, you know, PhD in the UK was in like three and a half years and you're, you're finished. Like, get out, you know? And like, and then what happens if you have a two-month gap in the middle of that when just, your whole life is collapsing, you know? And you're, you know, how do we account for this? And this doesn't only affect, I would say, like students who are displaced. This can affect people in different ways as as well um so it's recognizing what people bring in as well and it's also maybe bureaucratic things we talked about the very beginning the paperwork thing about recognizing paperwork but it can also then be a bit a bit broader like recognizing different ways of assessing how whether students should be get into a program or not or questioning the whole idea of assessment at, at that sort of level or whether universities are actually places for learning rather than assessing prior knowledge and so on so there's a there's a bunch of stuff but i'll let prem jump in maybe he has more um maybe i'll just add two things i think I think in many universities across the world, there has been a tendency to adopt planning and strategizing, which come from largely the world of, you know, you can call it what you want, whether it's neoliberalism or economics or capitalism or something like that, which, I mean, it has many things, but a lot of it is centering on creating uh, structures that enhance predictability. So you get someone in at a certain time, you do X and Y to them, and you expect the outcome Z, which is fine. It can work. But as Ian says, you know, students are diverse, some of them experience trauma, some of them have all sorts of stuff going on in their lives. And I think as a university institution, the biggest thing we can do is to step away from this type of planning, this type of institutionalizing a certain way of, of, of seeing how institutions should work and the people in them. We need to plan. We need to plan in a way that accounts for the mistakes that we will make as we plan. And we need to account for the way for the stuff the students are going through, for the mistakes that we'll, we'll experience. That's crucial. It's a fundamental thing that's really hard for me, at least, to, to, to explain or explain how it's become so hegemonic and so dominant that this is culture of planning. I mean, our university, where Ian and I teach, is going through this right now, a certain way of planning to streamline, to, you know, you know these words, streamline, to make centralize, all, all of these words, you know, these buzzwords from Tony Blair stuff. Then the other thing, much more simply, but also not simply, is, is really the institution can do so much if they step away from this type of streamlining, benchmarking, when it comes to admissions as well. I think one of the points that Ian was saying, students have these multiple 
forms of knowledge which are lost in the benchmarks. They're lost in the checkboxes. You know, have you done this? You know, you haven't done this. But is there a way of admitting students that moves away from assessing whatever it may be? You know, a student who struggles in the Hungarian system to pass the Hungarian equivalent of A-levels but because they're suddenly placed in Hungarian language school or whose knowledge isn't, you know, well assessed through the examination system. Is that another way we can do this? So a lot of it for me is moving away from, you know, creating predictability, creating benchmarks and to embrace accidents, to embrace insecurity, to try and let diversity resonate in the university. And maybe this always goes down also like to the way that we assess students in courses and in the classes as well. I was talking to a student who was originally from Afghanistan and, and he was talking about how he's in a liberal arts program now in Germany and he was telling me that, oh, you know, he sits there in the class and he has things that he thinks that he can understand and contribute to in a way that some of his how do you put it? I don't I don't want to make him sound bad like he, he said I, I think I know more than these than my fellow students you know I think I can like it articulate it better but I just can't write in the way that's expected of me by the professors right you know and so how do I how do I overcome this because you know this is this is what I'm graded on at the end right I'm graded on uh, whether or not I can articulate myself in this often vaguely undefined way that you know like you know this is we know what a good essay is we know who what a good writer is and that and that you know and it's like well you know somebody's had to learn a new language as a as a teenager go through a higher education system get grants and so on and so forth and then you know not do super well because they haven't quite got what we could problematically call the language sophistication needed you know to write an essay in philosophy and uh, so it's about thinking about assessment as well i think and 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 what we what we are assessing as teachers as well you know i'm clapping to for that because it is uh even someone who doesn't struggle with the language, I feel constrained by the rules of assessment in my universe. And it's very hard to try and do something new. And you get constrained. And and it's frustrating from even the teacher's end. And I know it's frustrating from the student's end who feel, you know, why it's sort of the race to the bottom where the, the best form of assessment or the easiest form of assessment is give one essay at the end of the term and it's 100% of the grade because it'll get through validation and, you know, it just becomes the easiest thing. And every teacher I talk to, we know intrinsically that that is a terrible thing to do. But it just so happens that so many modules and courses sort of rely on that. Yeah, I wish we can break out of that that mold. The other part that I was applauding when I was reading your book was you have this call to basically defund management and i was i was clapping in my head and just you know i was so happy to see that but maybe you know you can explain why you think it's valuable that we need to reduce the costs that universities spend on management at this point we can think about it also in like just very simple terms like i know how much the program that i'm the director of studies for costs right like I know how many students we can afford to take each year, like in this, you know, open access education program for displaced people in Hungary, which is a really hostile place to run a refugee education program because we have a horribly racist government. I know how much that costs. I know how much also a senior manager is paid 
at the university where I work. And I know I can run an entire program for less than what they're paid. And uh, it pisses me off. Like, it really pisses me off because I'm just like, when did we let the priorities of a university become this? And this is a small university which is meant to have a, a mission, right? And and other universities, especially when they're getting state funding to some degree, which we don't, like, you know, in the UK, and we get, like, insane wages there, insane wages. And I'm just like, when when did we allow these people to keep giving themselves pay rises? And um, and we were chatting a bit before we started the recording about the sort of general state, or maybe it was on the recording, I can't remember now, sort of the general state of higher education and, like, and like what's going on. And, like, these people aren't doing particularly good jobs. <laughs> Lots of universities are running deficits. Lots of universities are struggling to adapt to changing demands of students when it comes to what they what they want to learn loads of issues and yet we keep paying them more and more money like it's just like well guys like let's you know let, let's maybe engage in a bit of you know transparent open budgeting when we can decide what the priorities are inside a university do we need to keep making more and more positions that never used to exist you know like jobs that used to be done maybe for like a couple of years by an academic and then they would go back to their academic life have now become hyper specialized jobs that we have to pay people lots and lots of money for i'm just wondering like why that sort of anger came from because if you're going to run a program for people who've experienced displacement for sometimes it does cost money right you know like one of the so like when we we both work in well within the same unit at the university in quite different programs so like an informal education program is relatively cheap but like one where we when we if it's, we're going to take students who maybe need to do like a one-year prep program that's more expensive that costs real money you know students need to have a scholarship for that one year so they don't have to work we need to you know have small groups to, so the students can basically get the educational skills needed to make a competitive application to full-time education this is expensive but then also like you know how expensive is it versus you know senior management so it's like admitting so it's really having an honest conversation about what we want to spend our money on i just you know emphasize uh, what ian said it's inefficient i don't think it's ever been proven if you pay someone more to do a job and to create a job that actually makes them better at the job it, it does not it often leads to people trying to justify their salaries to the people who give them their salaries we also talked earlier about how boards of trustees in many universities have been taken over by a certain class of people who expect a certain type of demonstration of leadership and this is not to the best interests of education and learning always it might be it can be but it's not but then the other thing that then happens is how you know when we're talking about defunding the management we're not just talking about taking away salaries we're talking about defunding what are often pet projects of management. And I think a lot of universities, certainly in the United States, I think to an extent in Europe, have spent an insane amount of money on uh, real estate, you know, on capital investments. Um, and this becomes almost an end in itself. And, and why? At the same time, tuition fees are getting higher and higher. It, it doesn't make sense. Money defines our imagination. How we define money and how we use money defines our imagination about anything, certainly about education. Having money in the hands of a management who has a certain amount of power, who has interests um, in uh, justifying themselves to another group of people, I means certain things are impossible. For example, something very simple like participatory budget making. Budgets for universities should not be defined by an administrative class or a managerial class, but by students, faculty, administration together, figuring out what this participation is, um, figuring out what where where money should go, how it should be defined. Is it a resource that is 
discussed, it was a resource to be held, is a resource to be distributed, and we don't need an expert class telling us what to do in these cases. We're sounding quite anarchic, aren't we? Well, Ian Cook, Prem Kumar Rajaram, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. Really a pleasure to talk today, and congratulations again on your book. Thanks so much, Will. Ian Cook and Prem Kumar Rajaram work at the Central European University. Their new co-edited book is entitled Opening Up the University. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ngunle, Dian Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Metza, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.